Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I'm Dr. Ryan Strait, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Arizona, and this is The New Professor. I wanted to talk again a bit about Keybase, but specifically what it symbolizes, not necessarily it as a service. You remember I talked a bit about Keybase in episode one, but here's another recap and rundown. Keybase is basically a service that provides both relatively easy to use public encryption, as well as creating chains of trust between devices and identities. Basically, the way it works is this. You can prove you have a laptop and a smartphone, right? They're yours. You have access to them. You also have Facebook, Twitter, and GitHub accounts, as well as, say, a professional website. Keybase will let you claim your identity, and then using that proof of identity, begin linking together other devices and identities. So I would generate my PGP key through Keybase and then say, I own this Twitter account. I want to prove it's me. And Keybase says, okay, hotshot, here's something I want you to post to prove it's yours. And so you post it and Keybase sees it and goes, yep, that's you. All right. Thanks, champ. Repeat with other devices in service. And this is all public. So someone knows that if they see a Twitter account, as an example, that's claiming to be you, they could just go to Keybase and verify that that's actually your account. Now, the nice thing about Keybase is that you never have to take their word for anything. They check that proof at every turn. So why am I talking about Keybase then? Well, again, it's more about public identity and what that entails. So let's look at that. See, as higher education becomes increasingly inseparable from the online ecosystem it inhabits, understanding notions of identity and trust become paramount. And this moves beyond simply higher education, of course. And not to harp on social media, but I'm sure everyone has seen that Facebook copy and paste warning, if you get a friend request from me, deny it, it's not me. Heck, even the mayor of Yuma, Arizona was just the victim of having his identity borrowed and then used on an online dating site. Point being, knowing someone is who they actually say they are is pretty important when anyone can be anyone. Of course, there are pros and cons to being identifiable, just as there are pros and cons to being anonymous. In a 1999 paper, What's in a Name? Some Reflections on the Sociology of Anonymity, 
Gary T. Marks outlined a number of reasons one might want to prove one's identifiable information online. Among his reasons, of which there are many, he includes accountability, reputation, research, and even the creation and maintenance of friendly and intimate relationships. It makes me wonder if Keybase could have prevented half the plot lines of Lifetime films. But anyway. I thought it was interesting that Marx says the following about accountability. Saints and those with strongly internalized moral codes respect the rules regardless of whether or not they are watched. And it made me think of the Panopticon, Jeremy Bentham's spoken-wheel-shaped prison in which prisoner cells are always brightly lit from and viewable by the centrally located tower. And this creates the potential of being watched at all times without actually having to do it. So while Marx isn't wrong, and I'm not suggesting he is, I do think it brings up interesting questions about accountability and surveillance. But I think that's a, another show. So reputation and research are probably the most relevant aspects to the new professor. So let's talk about those. Reputation is, of course, highly prized in higher education. Whether it's the reputation of the individual faculty, of their program, their college, of the journals they publish in, the publishing house that gives them the book deal, reputation is a large part of any professor's vivre. Of course, reputation is a fragile thing. As any faculty will tell you who has maybe tweeted the wrong thing, most faculty are not, despite what they may think, myself included, comedians. Professional reputation among colleagues might be relatively safe, but don't forget websites like Rate My Prof, where a couple bad reviews, and I won't go into the merits of a site like that, but a couple bad reviews have the potential to tank enrollment for faculty that rely on large survey courses, for example. Even pseudo-social networks like the now-defunct Yik Yak that allow students to anonymously talk amongst themselves have the potential to influence the reputation of professors' programs or even colleges. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is a rampant or even serious issue, but I think it is something upon which to keep an eye. So what about research? When Marx says research is a key aspect of identifiability, or a key reason why you would want identifiability, he's actually referring to the ability to track research subjects. But I felt it brings up an interesting aspect of the research performance rather than researcher subjects. And this also leads back to reputation, of course. We must trust that research done by one person, if it has been shown to be thoughtful, rigorous, and honest, that more and other research done by that same person will maintain at least the same levels moving forward should be a safe assumption. So when we see a new publication from a particular person, we don't need to go back and recheck their pedigree again if we just trust that the identity is the same. Now clearly this relies on a certain level of trust by the reader and professionalism and honesty by the researcher, but while I might seem cynical at times, I believe this should honestly be the default. Of course, being identifiable is not always preferable. 
Sometimes you want, sometimes need, exactly the opposite. And again, Marx lists a few, among many. Facilitating the flow of information, encouraging reporting, self-help and information-seeking, to avoid persecution, even to encourage experimentation and risk-taking. Now, there's an entire list of 15 in the article that I'll link to in the show notes, but I'd like to focus on just one in particular, that last one. Anonymity, or at least the perception of being anonymous, as Marx describes it, can encourage experimentation and risk-taking without facing large consequences, risk of failure or embarrassment, since one's identity is protected. Now, this can be incredibly useful in higher education, especially when teaching online, as online communication can be so easily misconstrued due to lack of nonverbal cues and varying levels of fluency and linguistic command. How so? Well, consider that you have a class in which one student wants to ask a question but is afraid of being labeled stupid or lazy. Traditionally, it's likely that student would just refrain from asking that question, blatantly flying in the face of the line we all put in our syllabuses, there is no such thing as a stupid question. Online, if this question is being asked either in a class discussion forum or in a recorded synchronous meeting, not only might that student be hesitant to ask that question like in a traditional setting, but now that question is permanently recorded and can be accessed at any time. There becomes a record of that potentially embarrassing event insofar as the student could see it. One method I've been using to combat this is a way for the students to ask a question that not only hides their identity from their classmates, but also from me making them as close to anonymous as they can get. But if they have any particular typing or language-based quirks, the potential for their identity to be exposed exists, at least to me. Now, as I use Slack in my classes, I found a great little bot called AnimacBot, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. I've never actually heard it said. It works briefly as such. A student sends a direct message to the bot. The bot asks the student what person or channel the student would like that message sent to anonymously. The student responds. The message is then relayed as coming from AnimacBot. And in my experience, students have been very receptive to this. It's been quite popular. Along the lines of those little particularities that I mentioned, identity and anonymity are not binary. They exist on a spectrum. Somewhere between the two are two more concepts, fairly closely linked. Unidentifiability and pseudonym. You might think that if someone is unidentifiable, then they're also anonymous, but this is not necessarily the case. While anonymity requires unidentifiability, the converse is not true. Okay, so it sounds a little strange, so let me break it down. And this is where pseudonyms come in. Banksy, for example, is a pseudonym, and the artist can't be identified. However, when you see a work by Banksy, you know it's him, so he's not anonymous. See, it's a gray area. And some of the quote-unquote rogue Twitter accounts, like Rogue Potus Staffer, for example, they have an identity, they have a pseudonym, but they are not identifiable in and of themselves as people, just personas. 
Poppy on YouTube borders on this as well, and she actively refrains from using her real name, although it's not exactly a secret. And if you don't know Poppy, well, you are in for a treat. Uh, link in the show notes. So all this led me to a blog post by Doug Belshaw, where he was musing on pretty much precisely this. So I wanted to give a shout out to Doug uh, for a brief but on-point post about this. And there's a whole lot more that I could say about this, but I fear overwhelming the topic. So I'm going to hold off on more until next time. So next time on The New Professor... A surprise.